All right, cool. So we are going to be continuing in parables. So we have been, we are just doing a quick three-week series uh, through parables. And Zach kicked us off last week with an awesome talk. And if you were not here for it, I encourage you to go listen to it, either on our Spotify or on YouTube, because it was really good. So, but today we are going to be continuing in that. And what we're going to be talking about today is another parable, obviously. But before we do that, I want to talk about ownership. Ownership. So when we think about ownership, there are certain things that we think that we are owed or things that we deserve. And I was trying to like think through some of those different things of what we think that we owed or what we think we deserve. And ultimately, I was thinking about when we're kids. So I want you to take a second and think back when you're in middle school and what it was like to be a middle schooler, what it was like to be a middle schooler. And I need a little bit of involvement here. So shout out some things to me that when you were a kid, when you were in middle school, there are things that you thought that you deserved, things that you thought that you were owed. Just shout them out. Friends, Friends? nice. What's that? Health. Health, yeah, that's good. I like that. What else? Video games. Video games? Privacy. Privacy, that's a good one. What else? Other thoughts? Popularity. Popularity, what was that? More Legos? Amen. I, st- I still think I deserve that. But uh, what else? Uh, any, oh, another one. One more. All right, Aaron. Okay. You think you deserve the world, Aaron? I'll give you the world, Aaron. I'll give you the world. So. Okay. Those are good, though. For me, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about money. Like, I always wanted an allowance. Like, a lot of my friends had allowances. My dad would never give me an allowance. And my dad was, like, a banker, and he was a hard worker, and he's like, you have to learn how to earn your money. So I always had to do chores to earn it. And even then, I would do chores and cut grass and stuff like that, and I still thought that I deserved more, and I always wanted raises, and my dad laughed in my face. So I, uh, money was something for me that I thought about. But I want to get a little bit more serious and a little bit more specific for us now, and this one's going to be a little bit harder, but if you have some ideas, I want you to shout them out. As believers or as Christians, or if you're not a Christian, something with the Bible What are things that we think that we deserve to know about God? What are things that we think that we are owed when it comes to God? This is a little bit harder, but I I just want a few thoughts. So, The reason why he does things. That's a great answer. Yeah, that's a great thought. Yeah. His plans. Yep. Other thoughts? Those are good. What's that? Say it again. Why am I here? Yeah, that's a good one too. Those are good. And I think that, especially as American Christians, we think that we deserve or are owed some of these things, some of these ideas. And the parable that we are going to be looking at today talks a little bit about ownership, about who owns what and who deserves what. And ultimately, when we look at this, I want us to look at this in a way that is looking from a perspective of both selfishness and selflessness, all right? But I'll explain that in a minute. So we are going to be looking at Mark 12, and we are going to be uh, coming right off of chapter 11, where Jesus is being challenged, and his authority is being challenged. And so instead of Jesus just yelling at these Pharisees or talking back to them, he tells them a parable. So we're going to take a look at this, and we're going to start here up in verse 12. It says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. 
When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So immediately, what this is, is a picture of the future. And we're right on the cusp of this book of Jesus' sacrifice, of Jesus being killed. And so we're kind of looking into the near future, and we're also looking into the far future. But what's basically happening in this story is there's this guy, and he owns a vineyard, and he goes away, so he leaves some people with the vineyard. And he wants to collect what has grown at the vineyard, so he sends some people, and he sends some servants to go get it. And ultimately, the people that are running the vineyard beat them, yell at them, shame them, kill one of the servants. They're being selfish with the things that they're given. They're being selfish with the place that they live. And ultimately, the, this guy is like, well, I, got, I don't have anybody else to send, but I'm going to send my son. Not a servant, but my son. And he's going to go, and they won't do anything to my son. But the tenants have other ideas. And they go, and they take him, and they kill him. And so this, the guy who owns the vineyard's like, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill them, I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to give this to somebody else because they're not taking care of what I've given them. And so what this picture is and what's being painted here for us is an image of what is to come for Jesus, an image of what's on the verge of happening. And so we're looking at this and we see these tenants and ultimately they are us. They are the people that have been put here. And the vineyard is God's creation. It's earth for, for, to better understand it. And he, we have these tenants, people are living there, and God has sent his people, he sent prophets, he sent these disciples, he sent these followers to go tell others about Jesus, about what's going to happen, about him. And the people are hurting them, shaming them, abusing them. And then he's like, all right, well, they're not listening to anybody else. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send Jesus. And ultimately, at this point, Jesus is still alive, but he's prophesying, he's talking about the fact that, no, they're going to take me and they're going to kill me. The people that God put and entrusted with his creation have failed him, and now they are going to kill his son. And so what does God say? The owner of this vineyard, the owner of his creation, he says he's going to destroy those that are abusing it and give it to others. And that might seem harsh because a lot of times I think we like to think about God as like all he is is love and there's only, it's this only, all it is is like how we understand love and our definition of goodness and all these things. But in reality, God is wrathful. And it doesn't make him any less good because he just can't be with anything evil. And so because his creation has fallen, because it's abusing what he has created, he's going to give it to those that are his followers. He's going to give it to his people. Ultimately, it's going to be other believers. And it's largely these tenants think that they're owed something. They think that it's theirs. They think they own this vineyard. But in reality, 
It's owned by somebody else. It's owned by the Lord, the creator. And so instead of kind of digging and breaking down this whole text, I think chapter 12 and even going into 13 talks a little bit about different things that God owns. Different things that are his. So we're going to go through a couple other passages and we're going to talk about a few different things that we might think that we own, but they are actually God's. And the first thing is our money. First thing is our money. So going right off of this passage that we're talking about, we kind of see this story about these Pharisees that are trying to catch Jesus in, like in, in the corner. And they're like, hey, so like, what about taxes? Like, are we going to actually pay our taxes kind of thing? And these Pharisees are saying that because they're mostly just taking the money from the people and the churches and the temple and just kind of pocketing it. Like they're doing their own thing with it. And so Jesus, instead of going and aggressively pushing back, he takes a coin, a denarii, and he shows it to them. He says, whose face is on this and whose name is on this? And it's Caesar. And so what Jesus says is he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. He's showing them that Caesar's imagery is on those coins. It's on that money. And so if that's his, if his imagery is displayed on it, if it's put on there, then we should give it to him. Give it to him because his imagery is imprinted on that. His picture is imprinted on that. So that is for him. So give to him what is his. That is what he is owed. And then we see another story about money later in this chapter. I want to jump ahead a little bit to verse 41. It'll be up on the screen here for us. And he's sitting here and he's sitting across from a woman. And it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. So we see another story about money. And money can sometimes be an uncomfortable topic. I think especially for us in our age range, it could be weird because we don't have a lot of it. So we're trying, we're trying to like figure out what to do with the money that we actually have, you know? And so it can sometimes be an uncomfortable thing to talk about in the church as well. Um, and so when we look at this, Jesus is not looking at this woman and not looking at the amount that she's given. We don't see that. We don't see an amount, exact amount outside of the fact that it says she put in two small copper coins which make a penny. Two small copper po- coins. But Jesus doesn't point that out when he's talking. What he's saying is that she put in everything she had. Jesus is not here to specifically look at the amount that we put in. He's not, here, he's not looking at us saying, wow, like, you only put in $50, but you probably could have put in another 50 you know. That's not what he's saying. He's looking at the heart. Jesus is looking at the heart of this woman. And it's the same thing. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's because his image is on it. And so we should render to God what is God's because we are in his image. We are made in his image. Our heart is in his image. And so Jesus is saying, these guys can give a ton of money. They can give as much as they want. They could give a, a ton, but they are not giving everything. They are not giving their last penny. And there's something admirable about that. And that's the ideal. And I'm not saying up here saying, like, you have to give 
all of your money to the church, like don't pay your rent or don't pay, like, don't pay uh, for your bills or whatever. No, you have to do that stuff. But God wants to see that in your heart that you are willing to give, that you're willing to give everything for him. And it's, I, it's weird because I'm up here and I work here at the church and I'm talking about money and I'm sure that there's some of you that give money to the church. And I want to tell you and I want to make sure to specify that when I'm standing up here, I'm not saying give more money so that it can go in my pockets kind of thing. I don't get paid a lot. Like, that's just kind of the reality of it. Sydney and I live in a duplex. We live in half of a duplex and uh, it's decent. It's fine. This does not go in Pastor Rick's pocket. Pastor Rick, he lives in like a ranch out in Kent and uh, it's really small and it's, it's good for him. Same thing with Pastor Austin and Pastor Jared. Like, they don't live in big houses and they don't live in the nicest neighborhood. I want to tell you that because I'm talking about how God is calling us to give our everything and a lot of times that means money, but I'm not coming up here and saying I want it because I'm pocketing it. But a lot of that money goes to ministries like Next youth, kids zone, going to mission trips. It's going to figure out how we can make more parking spots so we're not backed up in the lot like we were on Easter kind of thing. Like, it's trying to figure out how we can do ministry better. We're doing our best to give it to God. And I want to make sure to clarify that because it can feel a little bit hypocritical, but that is not, that is not the goal here. The goal here is to look at our heart and see where God is placing that, that emphasis. See we, where we are putting our emphasis on what we are giving. All right, so we are supposed to give our own money because that is God's, but we're also supposed to give our timeline, our timeline. So a lot of times I think when uh, in this phase of life, we are very eager and we're very uh, excited to think about the future and what's to come. Some of us are just maybe just starting college and we are finishing up our first year and it's cool. We get to think about what the rest of college looks like. Some of you think about your career. And maybe you didn't go to college. Maybe you just jumped right into a career or your job and you're thinking about what the future holds. Some of you are focused on dating, maybe getting married to that person that you are dating. Um, maybe some of you guys are focused on kids, like you're thinking about what it's going to be like to have a family. Some of you are just wondering how you're going to get by the next day. And I like to joke about the future and I like to think about it. And I, I think a lot towards um, when I was at Cedarville, when Sydney and I were at Cedarville, that this is going to sound really funny because Sydney and I met at Cedarville. And, uh, but everybody there wants to, like, have a girlfriend or have a boyfriend. Everybody wants to get married. Like, we always joked that the girls would go there to get their MRS degree. Some of you need to, I need to let that sink in for some of you. Um, and then the guys, we would go hang out by the girls' dorm, which is the meat market, and we would just hang out there and try to meet as many girls as we could kind of thing. And uh, that was a lot of time because... A lot of those people went to college or went to Christian college like Cedarville so that they could meet that nice Christian guy or that nice Christian girl and they could get married and have a white picket fence and uh, make some money and have two and a half kids. You know, like we all wanted to go and do that like people wanted to. But how often do we think about what happens when it doesn't go our way? When our timeline kind of falls apart? When maybe we don't get married? There's a, in verse 18 of chapter 12, I want us to jump back there. The Sadducees are again are trying to get Jesus and to get them all caught up in a, some sort of 
fake truth. So we're going to look at this. It says, And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And that resurrection that's talking about is the day that we get to be with God for eternity. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Got him. Um, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So Jesus is basically coming up to them and saying like, you're so focused on this marriage thing. You're so focused on what's going to happen in the future, when they are with us for eternity. You're so focused on who they're going to be married, who they're going to be in relation to. But that is not the point. The timeline could get messed up. What our timeline looks like could look very different in two years, two weeks, two days. It could look very different because the point is not what it looks like when we're in heaven and whether we'll be with our spouse. It's not going to be whether you have this much money in heaven. It's not going to be whether, that, whether you've had this amazing career. What it is, is that he is the God of the living. That we no longer have to worry about death. We no longer have to worry about those, these things that we're scared of. But we have hope. We have hope in the Son and in this resurrection that we get. And it's an amazing thing. So there's three things that God owns. The first was our money. The second was our timeline. And this last one is our future. Is our future. So we, this is where we move on to chapter 13 of Mark. And it's really interesting because it's almost completely about the future. And this isn't the future that's just in like the next chapter or two. But this is like when Jesus comes back. When he comes back. And he's talking about the temple, this place where they worship, is going to be destroyed. And he's talking about how these kings and these kingdoms are going to go and they're going to destroy and they're going to pull things apart and they're going to hurt each other and they're going to kill each other. That there's going to be these Christians that are caught up in uh, false truths and they're going to be following false leaders. And it's going to be really difficult. And Jesus even talks about at one point in this chapter that there's going to be a time of tribulation, a time when it's going to be a very difficult to be a Christian. And at that time, life is going to be really hard. And he even warns, like, winter is going to be hard. Like, he talks about that. He talks about how winter is going to be hard, and he hopes that women don't get pregnant during the winter because he's not sure if the babies will make it kind of thing. Like, it's going to be hard. But it doesn't leave it at all that sadness. It doesn't leave it at all the darkness. Look at verse uh, 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
I want to focus on the Son of Man part here, just for a second. The Son of Man. It's a, that's a phrase that we have seen, that we saw in last chapter, but we saw a lot in the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, the Son of Man is a lot of times David. This great man, this man of God, this people that, this guy that people look up to. And this guy that ultimately failed multiple times, sinned. And he's supposed to be this representative of man. And so there's got to be a better man. There's got to be a better son of man. And ultimately, that's Jesus. But kind of the book of Mark, and it's structured in an interesting way that the son of man is talked about quite a bit, but nobody knows who the son of man is. Not until Jesus' resurrection. And so people don't realize that Jesus is talking about himself in this context, that you will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. They don't realize that until after the fact. And we're lucky because we get to. It's that dramatic irony that we know who the Son of Man is, but at the time they don't. And it's a beautiful picture of the future. It's a beautiful picture of what's to come. That there's going to be the Son of Man that's going to come and he's going to take his people. And we're going to be with him for eternity. And we just got uh, done with the book of Daniel uh, with our middle schoolers and high schoolers, which was a doozy because that book is wild. But with that book, it's a lot about the future and what's going to happen. And there's talks about beasts and these animals and these horns and these wars and all these different things. And similar to this chapter, this chapter talks a lot about all this different stuff. And I use this example for our high schoolers because I could try to come up here and tell you this, this means this and this will happen this time and this date will happen this day. But ultimately, I would end up looking like a crazy person. Like, it would just be like lines all over the place. You would never understand where, what's pointing where, and I'd be moving these dots because ultimately it's probably not fulfilled in my prediction because I'm just a human. So I could try to give you all these answers, but in reality, what chapter 13 is an arrow that points to something better. That's an arrow that points to a future hope. That even though the future seems hard, the future seems difficult, that we can look forward to something better. And that's what chapter 13 holds for us. And so that's a lot. And there's a, those were three things that I believe that God owns. But I want to make sure that we have some takeaways, that there's things that are a little bit more personal for us, things that are here for us. And the first takeaway is that we don't own anything. We don't own anything. We have been blessed with this creation. We've been blessed with this place that we have. We've been blessed with having life because God gave us life. And Jesus puts on display this ideal of this woman that gives her everything, gives her all. And we're like these tenants that are sinners, that are constantly pushing back, constantly pushing back on what God has given us, constantly talking about how much we think that we deserve things how much we think that we own things, when in reality, it's all God's. And how we feel, that matters. God cares about how we feel. But I want you to remember is that we don't own anything. That this is all for God. And what we do is for God, and God dictates what we own. And the second takeaway is that the Son of Man is our living hope. We are broken. Like I said, we are like those tenants that are destroying that are hurting God's creation and we have no right to do that and we love to cast down other people that we disagree with or we like to point in people's faces about how we might know what's better 
Or we live in a world that tries to point to ourselves and say, what you believe is good for you, and that's what you should believe. And you should put your hope in that, and you should put your faith in what you think is right. Don't put it on me, because I don't want to have what you have, but I'm glad that you have something. In reality, our hope is not in ourselves, because we are broken. We are fallen. But Jesus is our living hope. And we have the blessing to understand that he is that son of man that will come, that will come on clouds, that will come with power, and that will bring us to be with him. Lastly, is that the future is not on your shoulders. I think we're in a phase of life where we think that we have to figure out and define everything that's to come. We have to figure out every single thing that we are supposed to do. And we have to get those straight A's. We have to get that job right out of high school. We have to figure out what our career looks like. And I'm telling you right now that you do not have to have that on your shoulders. You do not have to have everything figured out. You do not have to figure it all out right now. That we have, this, we have these blessings of seeing what the future holds, not because it's a handbook, but ultimately because we get to see that something better is coming. And so your successes that you have, or your failures that you have, ultimately don't bear as much weight as we might put on ourselves. Because regardless, if we are faithfully following God, and we are doing our best to follow him, ultimately... We get to see and be with him. And that's our future hope. And so take that burden off your shoulders, give it to God, and do your best to pursue everything that he has for you. All right, bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word and everything that you've given us. I thank you for the opportunity that we get to look and learn through parables and through stories. Lord, uh, never let us forget the truth that you own it all. It's all for you. And ultimately in everything that we do, everything that we say remind us of your son and his work on the cross. In name I pray. Amen.